Let's take our Bibles, turn to John chapter 11 this morning. John chapter 11, where Freddie just read from, and want to be able to look at this passage of Scripture together this morning. Let me just catch you up a little bit if you haven't been here with us. If this is your first time here, or maybe you haven't been here in a couple weeks, so you can kind of catch up where we're at. Been studying through the book of John together on Sunday mornings. And John, I think the theme verse of the book of John is John chapter 20 and verse 31, which says, But these are written that ye may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And if you remember last week, we looked at a question that Jesus asked. Jesus made a statement. To Mary he, and to Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, okay, he's talking about spiritual death, but in the case of Lazarus, he also took someone who is physically dead. He, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, he says. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then Jesus asked a question. He said, Believest thou this? Do you believe what Jesus says or not? Right? That's really what it boils down to. Do we believe Jesus and his word and what we have or do we not? And so to kind of catch you up a little bit here, in John chapter 10, all of the religious leaders came to Jesus and they asked him, they said, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you God? Did you come? Are you the promised one? And Jesus answered and he said, yes, I am. He said, I'm God. He spoke with his words and said he was God. And then in chapter 11, he demonstrated that he was God by his works because he took a man who had been dead, Lazarus, the Bible says he'd been in the grave four days, and he brought him back to life. So Jesus demonstrated by what he said and what he did that he was God. And there were some responses to Jesus. People began responding to that, right? They wanted to see who he really was. And when they found out who he was, some people were really excited. Other people, not so much. Freddie read about some people that hate Jesus. You know what's crazy, folks? The people that hated Jesus the most in his time here on the earth were the religious people. You mean to tell me that religious people, spiritual people would hate Jesus? What's wrong with those people? But folks, when we take our religion and when we elevate it up, more important than the truth of God's word of who Jesus is, of who he claimed to be in his own word in the Bible, we've now made our religion more important than God. You say, but I thought religion is supposed to help you get to God. The problem is people take that religion is man's ideas and rules and regulations and things that they put about, and they try to say, well, if you do this, if you follow this, if you obey this thing, then you can get to God. If you get baptized, if you go to church, if you're a good person, then you can have a relationship with God. And while those things might sound good, in one sense they do sound good because I can get baptized, right? I, I can go to church. I, I can try to be a good person. 
And so it's things that I can do, and those make me feel good because if I can do it, then I'm in control of it, right? I get to choose what I do. Don't make me do something I don't want to do, right? That's kind of our attitude. But unfortunately, while that might feel good, that's not true. Just because something feels good doesn't make it true, right? It feels good to eat candy, but it's not true that candy is good for you, right? Even though it feels good. Things can feel great and not really be good. If any of you like to exercise, you know that when you start exercising, it doesn't feel good, does it? Like, yes, I get to go run five miles today. Just can't wait. Mm. Now, maybe one of you people that's a marathon runner or something does it all the time. Maybe five miles sounds great to you. But someone who's starting out, it doesn't feel good. Just because something feels good doesn't make it true. Because in the Bible... It teaches very clearly it's not about what you do that gains you favor with God. It's about what Jesus did for you. And it's about trusting in who Jesus is and what he did for you. That's how you have a relationship with God. And you might be a really good person here today. I'm not trying to discount that. That you're a nice person. That you help people and all those things. Those are wonderful things. But those things in and of themselves cannot get you a relationship with God. The Bible is very clear. It is only by grace through faith. It's not of works. Doing good works won't get you to God. But here in this passage, in John chapter 11, we have some very religious people. And when Jesus comes on the scene and He declares Himself to be God, and then He raises people from the dead, raises Lazarus from the dead, they're pretty upset about this. Because... Jesus is causing a problem for them. Because, see, these religious leaders were teaching, okay, if you keep our law, if you do our things, if you follow our ways, if you obey everything we tell you to do, then you can be right with God. And Jesus is coming along and disproving everything that they had said. People don't like to be told that they're wrong, do they? If you walked in here this morning, I said, boy, you just look terrible. You wouldn't like that, would you? You say, what's his problem? Who does he think he is, right? Or if I watched you driving on the parking lot and I came over, I said, who taught you how to drive? <laughs> You'd be really frustrated. You'd probably just turn right on and just go right on out, right? People don't like to be told that they're wrong. But the reality is, folks, if we are honest, we have to admit that we're wrong sometimes. And when it comes to God, he's always right. And so when Jesus did what He did, when He brought Lazarus back from the dead, it caused some people to hate Him. You say, really? He's bringing people back to life and people hated Him for it? They did. You see, when God acts like God, and God ought to be able to bring people back from the dead, right? If He made them all in the first place. But when God acts like God, some people don't like that. Because when God shows that He's God, it proves that we're not. And those religious leaders, even though they had a lot of maybe talent, maybe a lot of ability, they were nice people in the sense that they did good works. They tithed all that they had. They, only, they were very clean people. They followed the law, all this stuff. None of them could bring somebody back from the dead. 
So let's look at this passage here again. John chapter 11, verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, the, Mary, this was not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. She had been there when Lazarus rose from the grave. And they are following Mary. They see what Jesus did. It says they believed on him. It's very clear when people see what God can do, people can either believe in it and trust in it, or they can go off their own way and do their own thing. So these Jews believed. Look at verse 48, but, or 46, I'm sorry. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council. So they had this group of, there would have been what's known as the Sanhedrin. This was a gathering of the 70 leaders, the top religious leaders in the land of Israel. They gathered this council together and they said, what do we, what are we going to do about this? For this man doeth many miracles. Sounds like a funny question, doesn't it? What are we going to do about this guy? He's healing too many people. What are we going to do about this guy? He's bringing people back to life. Now, folks, doesn't that sound kind of ludicrous? That that bothered those people, that people were coming back to life that were dead? That it bothered those people, that people were being healed? Hmm. But here's the reality, folks. Sometimes we get bothered when God does what he wants to do, and it's not according to what we want him to do. God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this in my life? God, who are you to do that? God, I thought you loved me. Wait a minute. We're just like these folks, aren't we? What are we going to do about Jesus? He's healing people. He's bringing people back from the dead. Look at verse 48. He says then, If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. See, at this point in time, the the Israelites were not really in charge of their own country. This verse tells you who was. This moment in history, the Romans were in charge. If you go back and study your history book, you'll read about the Romans who were in charge of really the world at one point in time, at least all the what they called the civilized world back then. And so the Romans, their way of ruling was they would often let the local governments and local leadership continue to exist. They just had to pay tribute to Rome, right? And and they had to acknowledge that Caesar was the king and Caesar was in charge. But as long as these local area governments didn't get out of line, as long as they didn't cause too many problems, then the Romans would kind of let them be. But these religious leaders were concerned about Jesus, that he was going to cause problems for them because Jesus is healing people. People are starting to follow Jesus. People are starting to believe that Jesus is God. And do you know who the Romans taught was God? They taught that Caesar was God. Did you know that? They taught that their king was God, and they worshiped their king as if he was God. And their king had all kinds of power to do things like he was a God, even though We know he wasn't really God. And so they're worried that they're going to lose their position. They're going to lose their place. They're going to lose their nation. Verse 49, and one of them named Caiaphas, this is the high priest. This is the man who was in charge. He said unto them, ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us. This is good for us 
that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. That's a very interesting statement because when Gamaliel spoke this, he didn't really understand what he was saying. And that's what the next couple of verses tell us. That Gamaliel didn't understand what he was talking about. See, Gamaliel was referring to Jesus as this, this figure that was really frustrating for them. And they thought, well, if Jesus dies, then at least he'll die, but everybody else won't have to die. And, and that'll save our nation. The Romans won't be mad at us. We'll just kill Jesus, and the problem will go away, and then we won't lose our nation. But see, God was actually speaking through Gamaliel to have him say something that Gamaliel didn't understand at all. See, it is true that there was one that would die so that everybody else wouldn't have to. And it is true that that person was Jesus. It just wasn't what Gamaliel was expecting because Jesus was going to die. See, they're out to try to kill Jesus thinking they're going to subvert his plan. But don't you know it was God's plan that Jesus die? Did you know even wicked people trying to do wicked things can still work according to God's will? You say, how's that possible? Aren't they disobeying? They are, but God's still in charge. God's still in charge. These people hated Jesus. They were trying to kill him. And even in their speech of, it's better that one guy die than everybody else, he's actually prophesying wonderful good news. Aren't you thankful that one person died so that you don't have to die spiritually? Aren't you thankful that Jesus died for you? And that's what he's talking about. And if you keep reading in the next couple verses, you'll see it. Look at verse 51. He says, And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. Notice verse 52. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. So when Gamaliel made this statement, he didn't know this, but he wasn't just talking about the Israelites. He was talking about me. And he was talking about you. Did you notice that? He says, gather together in one the children of God. Isn't that special? You say, you mean to think, to tell me that clear back then with Gamaliel, when he's talking some 2,000 years ago, that God was thinking about me? He was. God's eternal. Past, present, future, it's all the same to Him. And God had a plan for your life and for my life and for your children and grandchildren, for the generations to come after us and all the generations that were before us. God had a plan for us. And we can see Him talking about it clear back here in John chapter 11. Isn't that pretty neat? I love it when you find yourself in the Bible. And he's talking about us. He says that Jesus is going to die so that we don't have to. And then he says in verse 53, Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify 
themselves. Now, maybe this doesn't make sense to you. Let me explain. So each and every year, the Jews would celebrate the feast of Passover. And this was a reminder to the Jews of what had happened to them thousands of years before when they were slaves in the land of Egypt. And the last night that they were in Egypt, God had told them, take a lamb, sacrifice the lamb, and eat the lamb, take the blood from the lamb, and put it around the door, above the door, and on either side. And he said, that'll be a picture of the blood that's covering your sin. And when the death angel passes over the land, he will pass over your house. But in the houses where they did not make the sacrifice, the eldest son died. And this was God's final judgment there, the last plague on the nation of Egypt. Because over and over and over, God had said, let my people go, let my people go. And Pharaoh had said, okay, I'll let your people go. And then he wouldn't, then he wouldn't, then he wouldn't. You say, is God mean? No, but he's righteous. He's just. He always follows through on what he says he's going to do. And so the Jews still to this day celebrate Passover. And so this Passover, before Passover, they would have to come to Jerusalem and they would purify themselves. That means they would go through a process where they would ask for their sins to be forgiven. They would make sacrifices. They would do various things to purify themselves, to ready themselves for the feast. Now think about this with me. You've got a bunch of Jews gathering together to purify themselves for a Passover feast. And what were they planning to do? Kill Jesus. That doesn't sound very pure at all, does it? But see, folks, when we live our own way and do our own thing and, and, and follow our own plans, apart from who God is and what God says, we do things that when you step back and take a look at it, they don't make a whole lot of sense. Why? Because these people were out for themselves. There are two kinds of people in this world, I would say. People who do things and people who criticize people who do things, right? This is Jesus. He's doing something good because he's God. And then you got all of his critics, these people, they were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of what would happen if he continued on doing what he did. These people hated him. See, this is the same conflict with Christ and Christianity today. People don't like to be told that they're sinners. Who are you to tell me I've done wrong? I'm nobody, but God is somebody. And he has the right to tell you that. Amen. And I'm just his messenger sharing with you what he says in his word. Amen. Ask yourself this. What's the highest authority in your life? A lot of people would say, well, it's God. But if it's really God, then why aren't you obeying him? Why aren't you doing what his word says? Why are you doing what you want to do? Well, only God can judge me. Yes, and he will. But why not obey him now? If Jesus says you're wrong, are you willing to change? Christianity requires authority. 
It requires an acknowledgement that I'm not the highest authority, that God is. That sometimes I'm wrong, and whenever I disagree with God's Word, then I'm always wrong. Think about this. What is God like? Well, we know there are many attributes of God. These are characteristics. These are who, who He is. This is what makes Him up as a God. But we know that God is love, right? God is love. Jesus demonstrated His love for, uh, for us because He came and He died for us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus substituted Himself in our place. This was the prophecy that the high priest Caiaphas made, that one would die for all. This is at the heart of Christianity. That it's, again, it's not what you do, it's what Jesus Christ has done for you. Right? We've sinned against God and the wage or the penalty for our sin is death. Romans 6.23 says that in the Bible. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't think some of us really understand our situation before God. How many of you, I'm sure probably all of you, saw on the news a month or so ago when those boys were trapped in that cave in Thailand? You saw that, right? And people around the world were praying for them and watching the news, trying to figure out what happened. As soon as you heard some news, you shared it with all your friends because everybody wanted to know what was going to happen to those boys. Those boys and their soccer coach got themselves all the way up in that cave, and when that cave flooded, there was nothing those boys or that coach could do in their own strength to get themselves out of that cave. It was physically impossible for them to do it. They didn't have the right skills, the right equipment. They didn't know the way to go. So what did it require? It required a whole host of people who came and gave their own time and, and risked their own lives to go into a dark cave underwater through super tight passages. Oh, it just gives me shivers to think about it. And go all the way up in that cave and get those boys and bring them out. And we call those people heroes, right? But that's our situation without Christ. We're stuck in a place that we cannot get ourselves out of no matter how hard we try. We might call those heroes today. The Bible calls Jesus our Savior. He's the one who saves us. He's the one that comes into a place where no one else could come. And bring us out to a place that no one else, not even ourselves, could bring us to. That's what Jesus did for us. And think about how much we rejoiced, even here in America, about boys clear around the world when they were saved from that cave. And folks, how much greater is it and I know it's great, boys are saved from cave. I'm thankful for it, aren't you? That's a blessing. But folks, we're not just talking about a physical life. We're talking about eternal spiritual life. Because those boys in that cave, if they knew Jesus Christ as their Savior, even if they had died in that cave, they would have left that cave and they would have gone to an eternity in heaven with God. But people that don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, when they die in that place... They go to an eternal death separated from God forever in hell. 
And that's why we need God's love. And that's why I talk about this stuff a lot, because it really matters. It's the difference between life and death. And we need to put aside our own presuppositions and preconceptions and, and our experience and our background and what I've always known about religion, church, and everything else and say, put that to the side. What does God's word say? What is the truth? Am I going to listen and obey it? Am I going to believe, as Jesus said? Or I'm going to keep doing what I want to do and hope that maybe it'll all work out in the end. But the reality is, folks, it doesn't all work out in the end when we go our own way. These people hated Jesus even though God was love and Jesus had come to substitute himself to die in the place. One person dying so the whole nation wouldn't have to. So that the whole world wouldn't have to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And yet some people still say, but how do I really know that God loves me? Greater love has no man than this, that a man give his life for his friend. I mean, you may have friends, but to have a friend that would give his life for you, that's a real friend, isn't it? That's a friend that's better than any other friend could be. God is love. But let me just give you one other attribute of God. God is in charge. See, people want God to be loved, but they don't really want Him to be in charge. They want God to love them and then just let them do whatever they want to do. But that's not who God is. If God did that, He wouldn't be God. He is in charge. And this is an issue that people throughout history have argued about. Is God in charge or is He not in charge? Well, if God's in charge, do I get to make my own decisions? Yes. God still gives you the freedom to choose. But He can give you the freedom to choose and still be in charge. He gave those religious leaders the freedom to choose to reject Jesus and yet still use them to accomplish His plan, didn't He? He gave Pharaoh the opportunity to choose to not let the children of Israel go and yet He still used Pharaoh as part of His master plan. Just because God gives you a choice doesn't mean he's not in charge. You say, I, I can't put all that together in my mind. That's okay. People have struggled with that for thousands of years. But suffice it to say, you are responsible for your own choices and your own actions. You can't blame it on anybody else. You get to choose what you do, but God is in charge. God will always accomplish His will in this world. He will win. We sang that song this morning. I'm on the winning side if I'm on the Lord's side. But He gives us the freedom to make our own decisions along the way. Some people hated Jesus. Other people responded in love. Some people loved Jesus. Look at John chapter 12 beginning in verse 1 there. Say, wait a minute, you mean you can preach through more than one chapter in a day? Yeah, because the chapter headings are just human additions so that we can find our place in the Bible. It's okay, the thought continues on, okay? John 12, verse 1, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was which had been dead, 
whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with them. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the odor of the ointment. So we see some people hated Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus was bringing people back from the dead. And then there's these other people. Boy, they love Jesus. Mary and Martha, these two sisters and their brother Lazarus. And they brought Jesus over. Jesus came to their house. It's just six days before the Passover. And if you know your Bible story, if you know the Bible timeline, this Passover happens and right about this time is when Jesus is going to die. You see, the whole book of John, while it's over 20 chapters long, the first 10, 11 chapters span about three years of G- three to three and a half years of Jesus' life. And the last 10 chapters or so is only about a week worth of time. Have you ever watched a movie right at the beginning where it's panning across and you're seeing the scenery and the beautiful skyline and all this stuff and then it zooms right in on one character and you begin to see what's happening moment by moment in that person's life. That's kind of what's going on here. God is bringing the eternal lens of Scripture down and He's focusing it in on this little small portion of Jesus' life because it's an incredibly important time this last week leading up to the crucifixion. And then three days later, the resurrection. But so Jesus comes to this house and Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there. We see Lazarus reclining by the table. I mean, that's what you'd be doing too, right? You know, I was just dead a few days ago. (laughs) Mary and Martha, you guys take care of dinner. I'm just going to sit here and be. I mean, think about that. This really happened, folks. This guy was dead for four days, and then Jesus brought him back to life. And now Jesus goes over to his house for dinner. That was some kind of party, I'm imagining. There haven't been any other resurrection parties that I know of. There will be one day, though, won't there? Someday when we get to heaven, I think this is kind of just a teeny, tiny sliver sneak peek of what maybe it will be like someday when we go to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. What a celebration that's going to be. As dead are brought to life. Eternal life. But here he is. Lazarus is at the dinner table, and it says there in the passage that Lazarus is one of them that sat at the table with him. I can't imagine what's going through his mind. Martha is there serving, and we know that about Martha. She's always serving. Every time we read about Martha, she's always doing something. The first time that Jesus meets Martha, she's serving Him. She's working in the kitchen. The next time we read about Martha is after Lazarus has died, and Martha's the one that comes right to Jesus and says, Lord, where were you when my brother died? You could have done something about Martha's a doer. Some of you are like that, right? You've got your schedules, and you've got your plans, and you've got your checklists, and you're working through stuff, you're doing things. I'm so thankful for people that serve God that way in our church, people that take care of stuff and plan and organize and put together children's ministries and vacation Bible school and, and plan out stuff so we can go work at people's houses or take care of needs around here. Thankful for people that serve that way. But God uses all kinds of people, doesn't he? 
And then there's Mary. Where do we find Mary? Well, here's Mary taking this ointment, washing Jesus' feet. She's at the feet of Jesus. Every single time, the three times we read about Mary in the New Testament, she's always at the feet of Jesus. The first time we read about Mary, she's there learning at the feet of Jesus. She's sitting there listening and learning and hearing what Jesus has to say. Then the next time we read about Mary was in John chapter 10. She's grieving at the feet of Jesus because her brother has died. And now here in John chapter 12, she's worshiping at the feet of Jesus. Mary is a passionate woman. She's an emotional woman. She does things with energy and passion, excitement. She forgets about perhaps the kitchen responsibilities and the things of the house, and she just wants to be at the feet of Jesus, soaking it all in. And I'm thankful for some passionate people too, right? People that are, are emotional and get excited. God uses those kind of people. You're the kind of people that just you know, wave your hands for no reason or clap or you know, get excited about stuff, right? Some of you emotional people are probably sitting here right now just waiting for your hand to fly around or something. It's okay. This is Mary. She's at the feet of Jesus. She takes this ointment. The Bible says it's very costly. Later on, in just a moment, we're going to read about Judas. He says, well, we could have sold that for at least 300 pence. You say, 300 pence, is that like $3? Like, like 300 pennies? No, the denarii was a day's wage. So when the Bible says this was very costly, a lot of Bible commentaries believe, based on what it's saying right here, that this was probably worth about a year's salary. Now, take what you make in a year. Maybe you make 40000 50000 60000 Some of you may make more than that. And you were to give a gift of that kind of value to Jesus all at once. Wow. I mean, think about that. Most of us probably couldn't give that gift even if we wanted to. How many of you have something that's worth a year's salary that you could just, okay, here, Jesus. But that's what Mary did. She gave extravagantly to Jesus because she loved him so much. This is a woman that just wants to give everything she has to him. The Bible says that she wipes his feet with this ointment and then she wipes his feet with her hair to dry his feet. This was a special kind of ointment. and This is something that they would have used on a body as they were about to bury it. Call it this spikenard. It's a very powerful smell made from spices and things, but to be pleasing to the nose so it would cover up the odor when someone had died. You say, why is this significant? Well, in just a few days, Jesus is about to die. And this odor was powerful enough, it smelled up the whole house. Jesus knew that this woman loved him very much. It wasn't a romantic love. This was just a love that she was so thankful for Jesus and what he had done and who he was. What a blessing. I'm thankful for some people that love Jesus that way too. Some of you are doers, some of you are emotional folks, and 
Some of you, maybe you're more like Lazarus. Lazarus loved Jesus too, but he's reclining at the table. He's just sitting there. But you know, Lazarus could have made it all about himself, but he didn't. See, in the next few verses, Judas, he tries to use the situation to his own benefit, doesn't he? Some people hate Jesus. Some people love Jesus. Some people use Jesus for their own benefit. John chapter 12, verse 4 says, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the bag. He was the one responsible for the money and bear what was put therein. Hey, if we sell this, there's more for me to steal. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my bearing, hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Judas, the disciple of Jesus, is rebuking Mary, who's the worshiper of Jesus. How sad. Because Judas wasn't a true disciple, was he? He's doing it publicly. If he really cared, he could have gone to her privately and he could have taken her, Mary, why did you do that? Why did, why did? It would have been better. Or he could have gone to Jesus privately, but he didn't do that either. No, he made a public statement. See, if we're selfish and self-entitled and self-indulgent, we can find ourselves in the same circumstance, can't we? I don't understand why all those people are giving to that project at church. They should be giving to the my pet project. Or I don't understand why everybody wants to do that. I think they should do this because it benefits me. Let's not be users of Jesus in that sense. Jesus is not there for us to take advantage of, for our own selfish desires. Judas, he's the accountant. He's the one in charge of the bag, of the money, and he's been stealing, and no one knew what was going on except Jesus. You say, why did Jesus allow this guy to be there all that time when they're stealing from him? Aren't you thankful that Jesus is long-suffering with you too? He's patient. And the first time you do wrong, he doesn't just chop your head off. That's not how he works. I think Jesus kept Judas as part of his group because he loved Judas. Just like he loves you and me. Now, did, was Judas still used in the master plan of God? Yes, he was, right? Because Judas betrayed Jesus so that they would take him in. He was crucified. He was part of that process. But I believe Jesus loved Judas. And Jesus loves you. You may be sneaking around and getting away with stuff and doing wrong and nobody knows about it, but I want you to know God knows about it. And no matter what you do, no matter what you sneak around, no matter, oh, nobody knows, I'm getting away, it must be okay. It's not okay. There will be judgment in the end, but maybe not yet. This is interesting because this is the very first time in the Bible that we have any of Judas's words recorded for us. And the first thing we read about is him talking about money, right? He tried to sound very pious about this, but he really just wanted to steal. 
Let me give you a couple things here when it comes to people who are users of Jesus. Beware of people who have hidden agendas. People are there for themselves. They're not really there to worship God. They're really there to take advantage. No one knew what Judas was doing other than Jesus. We need to be open and honest about who we are in Christ. And the reality is we're all sinners. But we can be saved by grace. Be open and honest about who you are in Christ. Don't be sneaky. Being sneaky doesn't get you ahead. It may feel like you're ahead. But you're not, because God knows. Be honest about who you are. Secondly, beware of people who worship wealth. It's not wrong to have wealth, but beware of people that worship it. See, this is Judah's concern. How can I get some more money? It's, it's very important to him that he just has more. We don't worship wealth. We worship God with our wealth. When God blesses you, worship the Lord with it. See, money is neutral. Money is just a tool. The Bible says it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's not your money that's evil. It is the desire to have more of it. It's the love of it that makes it evil. And you can either love money and use people, or you can use money to love people. Right? And that's really the reality. Say, so is there any other place in between? Not really. You either love money and use people to try to get more of it or you love people and you use the money that God gives you to help people. And folks, as a church, we want to be the second one of the two. Use what God gives you to help people because you love people. Don't use people. You know, people sometimes even use churches and use people in the church just to get more money. Folks, God supplies our needs. And churches help people that have needs. It's okay if you have a need and someone in the church helps you out. But folks, God knows why you're here. Don't just be here so you can make more business contacts. Maybe if I talk to all those people, they'll all buy my product. That's not why we're here. Don't use people to get money. Use the money that God gives you to help people. Beware of those people who worship wealth. Number three, beware of people who are self-indulgent. Right? Mary is giving. Judas just wants to take. Beware of people who parade piety. Judas is trying to sound very pious. Let's sell this and let's give the money to the poor. I mean, don't, doesn't Mary know? I mean, we could probably buy like 50,000 sandwiches with that. That'd be better used. Folks, beware of those who parade their piety around. Now, it's not wrong to give to the poor. It's not wrong to make sandwiches for people who are hungry. All those things are not wrong. But if someone wants to give an extravagant, lavish gift to the Lord that's just for Him, that's okay too. Beware of people who don't understand godly generosity. Mary is passionate with everything she has, right? She's always at the feet of Jesus. Her words, her worship, her wealth. She just gives it all. And people look at her and say, what's wrong with that lady? She's too passionate. We feel that way about some people, right? They're just, must be a fanatic. If someone's doing it 
because they want to worship God passionately, let them do it. It's between them and the Lord. Beware of people who don't understand godly generosity. See, in our culture, we think of two categories, right? Poor and rich. We idolize one and demonize the other. Some people say, well, you know, I just can't stand those rich people. Always out for themselves. I like me some good poor people. Poor people are the best people. You can just trust them and they're honest. Other people, it's the flip side, right? These poor people always taking advantage. Sure like being around nice rich people. Even our government does it, don't they? Oh, it's those one percenters. Folks, I realize there's sinners on both sides, right? But let's not try to look at one as better than the other because with God, the issue is not poor and rich. God makes some people poor and He makes some people rich. And it doesn't mean that one is loved more by God than the other. See, religion does the same thing, right? In churches, some churches are like, yeah, we want a church full of poor people because those rich people, we just can't trust them. I mean, even the Bible says it's going to be hard for the rich man to get into heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the heaven. And while that's true, right, God loves rich people just as much as He loves poor people. See, the difference in Scripture is not the difference between rich and poor. It's the difference between godly and ungodly. You can have godly rich people and you can have godly poor people. And you can have ungodly rich people and ungodly poor people. The difference isn't how much money you have. It's how you use what God has given you. It's what's in your heart. Right? Was Judas rich? Well, he had the bag. He was stealing a lot. So, yes. Was he godly? No. Was Mary rich? Well, she was rich enough to give something that was worth a year's salary to the Lord at one time. So yes, perhaps she was rich. Was she godly? Yes. Was Jesus poor? Yes. The Bible said he didn't even have a place to lay his head. He didn't have a house, didn't have a home. But was Jesus godly? Well, absolutely. He's God. Are there poor people because they are ungodly? Yes. Some people won't work or they just lose all the stuff that they have through bad decisions, doing things that are wrong, bad habits. Are there people that are godly and poor though? People that work hard, they're honest, they do the best that they can and they just don't have a lot. Yes. And God blesses both kinds, poor and rich. Difference is you're going to be godly, you're going to serve God. Or not. And then finally, we see from this passage is these different responses to Jesus. We had those that hated Jesus, those that loved Jesus. Then Judas, who tried to use Jesus for his own benefit. And the final thing we see from this passage this morning is that your testimony will be tested. There's a testimony that we have if we're a follower of Jesus, and that testimony will be tested. Look at verse number 9. It says, Much people of the Jews therefore knew that He was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom He had raised from the dead. 
But the chief priest consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Wow. Because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Lazarus had a testimony, didn't he? Remember I said a few minutes ago, there he was. He, he was just sitting at the table. Lazarus knew it wasn't all about him. He wasn't trying to market his new line of clothing, you know, resurrected wear, you know. or <laughs> He didn't sell the rights to his story for somebody to write a book or make a movie, right? A sequel, TV series, new video game that's coming about, about the life of Lazarus, you know. But isn't that how sometimes we try to use God's blessing in our life? We live in a culture that's all about fame and fortune and themselves and getting ahead. And if some little thing happens to them, it might even be God's blessing. People try to spin it into something that they can use for their own benefit. That wasn't Lazarus. You read those verses, these people are coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus because they saw what had happened to Lazarus. Lazarus had a testimony. Your testimony is the story of what God has done in your life. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a testimony. Now, some of you here this morning, if you know Jesus Christ, maybe you have an exciting testimony. Maybe there's a couple shootings and a car chase and, you know, somebody swinging from a trapeze or something as part of your testimony. And sometimes we may think, wow, that's amazing. You know, you hear those people give a uh, speak in church and they tell you, boy, I was into this and into that and it was a mess and God saved me. And we all say, wow, that's amazing. But folks, even if you have a boring testimony, it's not boring because it's your story of what God did in your life. And don't be afraid to share your testimony. Lazarus shared his testimony. People saw what had happened. They heard what had happened. And they came to see Lazarus. And instead of Lazarus sitting there going, yeah, here, you know, buy my t-shirt or whatever, you know, not that he was selling t-shirts, but something silly for himself. He said, yeah, let me tell you about the one who did that for me. And he pointed him right to Jesus. What is your life about? It is about pointing people to you and yourself and building your own brand and your own image and who you are. And hey, if I post this, I'll get more likes and more followers. No, that's not what it's about. It's about if any attention is coming my way, I'm pointing it right to the Lord. Let me tell you about the one who did this. I, I, I've been blessed, yes. Let me tell you about why I've been blessed and who blessed me. I got well, I was sick, and I got well. Let me tell you about the one who healed me. I was struggling, I was poor, and, and my needs were met. Let me tell you about the one who met my needs. Too many times, though, folks, we, some of us will pray and we'll beg and we'll ask and we'll do whatever we can when we go through a hard time. Or it's a financial struggle, physical struggle, family struggle, drama, whatever's going on. And then when that problem gets resolved, we just go right back and do our own thing again and act like God had nothing to do with that. How sad. Your testimony will be tested. Lazarus' testimony was tested. When Lazarus is sitting there and he's pointing people to Jesus, what happens? The religious leaders say, we're going to try to kill him too. Although I think if I'm Lazarus, I'm probably going... You can't scare me with death. <laughs> I've already been there. <laughs> been there, done that, right? 
got the grave clothes. They took them off. But uh, Lazarus is, is brought back to life, but he's pointing people to Jesus. And folks, you may not have a story if you were physically dead and brought back to life, but if you're a Christian, you were spiritually dead and God gave you spiritual life. And that's a testimony. Don't be afraid to share it and be faithful with it and know that people may test you with it. Some people say, well, I just don't talk about Jesus to people because I don't like their response. They were trying to kill Lazarus. I don't think any of us have probably faced death for our testimony. Is Lazarus lying? No, he's telling the truth, right? This is what really happened. Don't be afraid to share the truth of what God has done for you. And realize that when you share the truth, not everybody's going to like it. You're like, but this really did happen to me. The Bible says in Romans 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That phrase, to hold the truth in unrighteousness, literally means to suppress the truth, to hold it down. People don't like the truth when the truth points out that they're doing wrong. And when someone is sitting there saying, I've been forgiven, I was lost, but now I'm found, I was dead, but now I'm alive. You can't argue with that very well, can you? People just try to push you down or push you away or get somewhere else. And if people respond that way to your testimony, don't let that stop you from sharing it. Because every time you put light out there, it pushes the darkness away, doesn't it? And people that want to insist on being in darkness, they're going to feel pushed away. But there are lots of people that need the light. And if we'll share the light and be faithful with it, God can use us in a special way. The truth sets people free. That's what John 10 says. The truth will set you free. And there's always a war against truth. There's always been a war against truth. You go back to the Garden of Eden, there was a war against truth. The devil came in and he tempted Eve and he told her things that were not true. Because there's a war against truth. They wanted to kill Lazarus, not because he was lying, but because he was sharing the truth that would set people free. But people that are in power who are not uh, humble before God, they don't want people to be made free. They want people to follow them and not God. But the truth will set you free. It will restore families. It will give you eternal life. It's the most powerful truth in the world. And if you know that Jesus Christ has forgiven you, you have a testimony. And here, in just a moment, we're going to have a time to respond to the truth this morning. I want you to ask yourself, am I somebody who's a hater of Jesus? If you are, Jesus wants to change you. He'll forgive you. Are you a, a lover of Jesus? Someone who loves Him. Jesus wants to encourage you this morning. Are you someone who just uses Jesus for your own benefit, but you're not really here for what God wants you to do. You're just here for yourself. God wants to give you a new purpose. And if you have a testimony this morning, will you share it? In just a few minutes after we have a time to respond, there's going to be some people who come up here and get in a pool of water in the middle of a building where everybody else is dressed and nice and they're not doing it to go swimming. They're doing it to be baptized. And you know what baptism is? It's a testimony. 
It's a testimony. It's saying, this truth, it set me free. And I want everybody to know about it. So I'm going to do something that may seem out of the ordinary. It might seem a little bit different because it's a testimony of what Jesus has done for me. And my sins, while I had many, they've been all washed away. And while Jesus, He died, He was buried, and then He rose again. And so I'm excited. We're going to see some of that testimony this morning. And the Bible teaches that when you're baptized, you should do it in front of other believers so the believers see the testimony. And then we can come alongside them and encourage and say, Praise the Lord. You've accepted Christ. You're now a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not the baptism that saved them. It, that's just the picture of what already happened. And now they're telling everybody about it. And maybe some of you, after you see this this morning, you'll say, you know what, I, I need a better testimony. I need to be baptized too. And if that's in you, I'd be happy to talk to you after the service and let's make sure you're ready and understand what it is. And it's not hard to put water in this. We can do it again next week. Do you have a testimony? Do you believe? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here this morning and something from God's Word has worked on your heart, and you would say, Pastor, I know that I need to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. I, I don't believe I've ever truly been saved. I know who Jesus is. I understand that He died for me, but I've never given Him my life. I've never asked Him to forgive me of my sin. If that's you here this morning, I'd like to pray for you. You're in your seat, the heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Would you lift your hand so I can pray for you this morning? If you would say, Pastor, I need to be saved. I need to have my sins forgiven. Would you pray for me this morning? I'd like to do that. All right, thank you. Anybody here this morning say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I've been going through some things in my life. I've had some struggles. But Lord, I need to have a testimony that is clear and points people to Jesus. Pastor, would you pray for me that I would have a clear testimony that points other people to Jesus? Would you lift your hands? I'd like to pray for you this morning. All right, thank you. Several hands. Father, we thank you for these folks. Lord, I'm just asking for hands, but Lord, you see hearts. I pray that you'd work in them. If somebody here this morning doesn't have a clear testimony for you, in whatever area it is, Lord, you're working in hearts. Lord, I pray that they would Make that right with you today. Lord, if there's somebody here today that does not know you as their Savior, I pray that they would trust in you for salvation. Lord, we thank you for this church and what you're doing in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.